Good morning, Grace Orange. Please open your Bibles to Acts chapter 6. We're getting into Acts 6 today. And I hope you had a great time gathering with your family and friends over Thanksgiving. I hope that you were able to tell stories of God's faithfulness and give testimony of the grace of God in Christ. You know, today we're going to hear a story that happened in the early church. And I think if they had been at a Thanksgiving service, they would give this as their Thanksgiving testimony. They'd say, look what God did. We had this issue that was going on. People were complaining, and, and the leadership came up with a good idea, and we all agreed, and we chose seven people to take care of the problem, and as a result, ministry flourished. More and more people came to know Christ. So I think this would be their testimony if it was Thanksgiving and they were giving a testimony. We come today to one of the best uh, passages in all of Acts. It's a great passage because it started with a problem, it moved to a solution, and the end result was God's amazing work as usual. I want you to open your Bibles and stand with me, to, and I'm going to read Acts 6, 1 through 7. And we're going to see the first church making a really good decision. Uh, as the numbers in, in, the, in the church increased, so did the challenges. And seven servants are chosen to serve Jesus to meet a pressing need in the church. That's what we're going to see. So Acts 6, beginning at verse 1, and I'll read down to verse 7. Now in those days when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the Holy Spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And what they said pleased the whole gathering. They chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Procurus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch. These they set before the apostles, and they prayed and laid their hands on them. And the word of God continued to increase. And the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. Lord God, thank you for your word. Lord God, we acknowledge that there is power in your word, and that by your word we grow in Christ. Lord, we pray that by your Holy Spirit you would powerfully work in our hearts right now and transform us. Lord God, renew our minds. Make sense of our lives for your glory. In Christ's name, amen. All right, please be seated. The main idea of this passage before us is this. When a church preserves unity and prioritizes responsibility, it promotes ministry. When a church trust God and acts wisely and preserves the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace, 
When a church keeps its priorities straight, its leaders and all the people have their priorities straight in terms of what they're to do and what they're called to do, ministry flourishes. This is what we see here in Acts. The problem was that the widows of the, of the Greek-speaking segment of the congregation were being neglected in the daily serving of food. Now, the church was all Jewish at this point. There were Hellenists that were Greek-speaking Jews from all over the known world. There were Hebrews, which were Aramaic-speaking Jews. And so one segment of the congregation, of this 10,000-some people, were complaining against the other. The complaint was the Greek speakers were complaining against the, Hebrew, the Aramaic speakers that they were neglecting their widows. That's the problem, and what you see is the church organized to meet the need. The church got organized to meet the need, and the result was that unity was preserved, and responsibility was prioritized throughout the church, and ministry grew. Ministry flourished. It was promoted. It was, they did what was, what was possible for God to use the church in extremely significant ways, and more and more people came to know Christ. That's what we see here. The outcome of this good decision on the part of the church leaders and the whole church, really. Now, Luke is a master storyteller. He is weaving in the increasing opposition against the gospel right there with the growth of the gospel. And what we see is he's giving this, this episode today for a very important reason. First, it stands by itself as, as a, a, a the beauty, a, a model in the beauty of unity and of getting your priorities straight as, as church leaders and reaching out with the gospel. But what he is doing is leading in to, to a, a huge evangelistic outreach to Gentiles. So chapter 6 leads into this, and then you see chapters Six, the rest of chapter 6 and then on into chapter 7 Stephen, one of the seven that are chosen this guy is an evangelist and he's preaching the gospel loses his life for it chapter 8 you've got Saul ravaging the church and Philip one of the seven an evangelist who was out reaching an Ethiopian eunuch for Christ chapter 9 Saul gets saved chapter 10 You'd think that hell was freezing over here because Peter gives the gospel to Gentiles. And God has to show him in a very dramatic way that he is not to withhold the gospel from anyone. So Luke is giving a lead in here because the, the Hellenists, the Greek-speaking segment of, of the church, was now going to get really involved. So you got Philip and Stephen and others. What was the church doing at this point? How did we get to this point? We've seen it in the book of Acts that they were meeting in the temple every day. They were meeting from house to house, having fellowship and meals and getting into the word. This was a community that was in communion with its Lord and one another. Very significant connections within this church. They had the main meeting on Sunday, smaller meetings throughout the week, very similar to what we do at Grace Orange where we gather together on Sundays and then we scatter for, for uh, fellowship and, and 
learning together and encouragement together throughout the week in homes and in church rooms and in restaurants and so on and so forth. And, and what they were, they were a unified fellowship. They were together. Luke said it very clearly. They were unified and they had qualified leadership. They had the apostles leading them. And a large number were serving in ministries. They were doing things. This is what we see a lot like our church. Praise God, a lot like Grace Orange. Now, what they were doing is that they were responding to what the Spirit was doing. And as a result here, they had to get organized to meet a pressing need because a complaint arose in the church. The, the disciples are increasing. More people are coming to faith in Christ. They're growing. They're learning. They're they're having explosive growth, exponential growth, and that's really, that's really the heart of, of our study in Acts. This is Christ's work through his witnesses for his purposes. And this is going on, and Gamaliel was right. Last week, we, we saw him stand up and say, look, if this movement is of God, you will not be able to overthrow it, and if you do try, you would even be found to be fighting against God. So Gamaliel was right. You can't overthrow this, or else you're fighting against God. But it's important to realize that this church, this church was not primarily an organization. It was a living organism with Christ as the head. It was a living organism, and it was orchestrated by God, not man. It is the work of God. The church is the work of God in the world. It's a spiritual organism. So these are the continuing acts of the risen Lord Jesus Christ. These people are united with God through faith in Christ. They're united with each other. But organisms need organization and structure, and this comes about. This comes about. This is what we see in Acts chapter 6. Now you go to the Corinthian church. You take a sidebar, take a side trip, and go to the Corinthian church, and what do you see there? Chaos, confusion, contention. God had to correct it. Well, here God corrects his church right away in a very joyful way actually now Ananias and Sapphira that was a very scary way right this is a very joyful way now you see enemies against the church in the book of Acts first enemy was persecution chapter 4 second enemy was sin in chapter 5 and now a third enemy dissension in chapter 6 have any of you ever experienced dissension in a church amongst Christians anyone I'm sure you have. Maybe in your own heart, maybe in your small group, maybe in a larger group setting. Praise God that in the history of Grace Church of Orange, we have not had a church split. And by God's grace, we won't. If we do what pleases God, we won't. But something was wrong in the early church and people became aware of it and so they had to deal with it. What you'll notice is the leadership didn't say, we're gonna sweep this under the carpet and not deal with it. Verse 1 says this, and this is where we're going to see how they preserved the unity of the church. They preserved unity. In those days when the disciples were increasing in number. In those days, that phrase links this episode with the one that came before it. The arrest, the interrogation, and the release of the apostles. Right after that, this happens. Now, what are they doing, by the way, right before this happens? They are continuing to preach the gospel even though there was a renewed ban on preaching the gospel. They had been told, you cannot preach Christ. Stop talking about Jesus. They kept doing it. So 
the church is increasing in number and a complaint arises everybody in the church is Jews there's the Hebrew Aramaic speaking ones there's the Hellenist Greek speaking ones and the Greek speaking Jews said our widows are getting neglected you're favoring your widows over ours so they have a they have a concern they've got a complaint in fact it's called a complaint here and it's very interesting I got to give you the word it's just a funny Greek word gongizmos isn't that what gongizmos say it really weird like gongizmos yeah it's a yeah it's very colorful word a very strong word and I think I think that Luke was probably using this word to to bring to their remembrance the griping of the Hebrews in the wilderness after God had granted them this huge deliverance now it's interesting in Christ God breaks down walls and then we put them back up it's true that God puts people together in the body of Christ that probably would never get along outside the body of Christ and sometimes they don't get along inside the body of Christ scores of people are, are going around you know even at churches such as ours well I'm I'm only going to go to first service because those other people are at third service so I'm going to keep a whole service you know between us you might see each other in public I don't know you might want to deal with that I don't know but the question is is this a good complaint or not I think Thanksgiving time is a really good time to to think about this because it is very easy is it not to set up a day devoted to giving thanks and complain the whole time or even to spend a lot of the time complaining and, and a lot of times it's about other people I don't know a lot of people who sit around and go you know I'm going to complain about myself right here everybody I just want you to know because I'm so sinful and I do all these things wrong and I'm just oh I'm so upset with myself it's usually all something about somebody else right but I think that this here is good complaining I think there's a place for good complaining they did it right because here's why you don't see any correction here from the apostles like hey you shouldn't be complaining about those those other people in the church that that are you say are you know keeping your widows out of the serving of the food actually it was happening it was a valid complaint no correction here and so here's what the apostles do they admit it it, they, it escaped their notice so they very simply and very wisely dealt with the problem took care of the matter and it was a church-wide effort one of the first things that goes wrong when someone has a complaint is they go to the wrong people well they go to the easy people the people that are e by the way if you receive a lot of complaints there might be something wrong with you too okay because here's why people know you'll receive them right now unless you're very wise and godly and you actually help them get through their complaints well a lot of people they're like hey I want to complain to you because I know you'll agree with me right you know those people that do that so 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 here's the first thing they did now this will work in your family too by the way there's a problem get everyone together right first thing a lot of people do when there's a big problem is they go to the only the people that they're going to agree with and they won't tell them they're wrong and then they talk about the other people but they never get together with the other people well here's what the apostles did very wise move 
hey, everybody, they put the bulletin out, right? Uh, all 10,000 of you are coming for a family meeting. They called a family meeting. Their very first church called a family meeting. They're all together in the living room, you know, around the colonnade of Solomon. Uh, and they're just kind of like, you know, scrunched in to the portico. And they're all talking. What's up? What's going on? Oh, oh. But I bet you a lot of them knew what was going on. A complaint arose on the part of the Greek-speaking segment of the population against the Aramaic-speaking part of the population, and it finally reaches to the ears of the apostles. So everybody knows what's going on. They get everyone together. The big gathering. But by the way, if this happens in your family, you got a family issue, have a family meeting with everyone there. We're not starting until everybody's here. I can just see it. You know, Peter's like, nah, we, we, we're still missing a few. Okay, now we can start. Okay, now, yeah, those guys came in. Okay, now we can start. So what do they do? They get this meeting together, and, and they, they address the complaint. Now, it's very interesting in verse 1 where it says that uh, their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. The form of that, of that phrase, being neglected, is in the imperfect tense, and it literally means it's been going on for quite some time. This has been a problem in the church for quite some time, and it reaches a, a head. It, there's a problem, and it gets worse. And the, the general meaning of the term distribution of food basically means service. It's diakonia. It's, it's the, where we get our word deacon from. It's, it's the serving of the poor believers, and it's the same word in the Greek that's used in chapter 1 for the ministry the apostles received, the twelve. And they were known as the 12. That's why I titled this sermon, The Seven Servants, because they were known as the seven. You look over in Acts 21, and Philip is, is referenced as one of the seven. And so you've got the 12 apostles. Now you're going to have the seven servants in the church. And the 12 are looking for a solution to the problem. They, they want to remedy the neglect of the widows, but they also want to make sure that they get to do what they're called to do, that they get to preach and teach the word of God, that they get to pray, and, and that neither one is to be neglected. And you'll notice in verse 2 that the word neglected is used again. Actually, it says give up, but it's the same word. The 12 summoned the full number of disciples and said, it is not right. So there's something that won't be right if they take care of it. They're like, if we take care of this, it won't be right because we won't get to pray and, be in the, and teach the word. We've got to do that. We're not going to neglect that. We realize that the widows are being neglected. We're not going to neglect our role to take care of it. But you're going to take care of it. That's why they had them all together. So tells us something very clearly. Needs should not be neglected in the body of Christ. And responsibilities should not be neglected in the body of Christ. So the apostles call this family meeting... They propose a solution, and the, the solution is this. And this is where they're going to now start prioritizing responsibility in the church. Look at verse 3. They fielded the complaint, and they did something about it. Therefore, brothers, pick out seven men. You choose seven. Very interesting that all seven had Greek names. They could have said to the Hellenists, to the Greek speakers, you choose the seven that you think are the, the best for this job because you're the ones with the complaint and you understand the situation. But they tell, they tell the, the brothers here, therefore brothers, pick out seven. 
So they're telling the congregation, you pick them, and we'll appoint them. You pick them, congregation. We, the apostles, will appoint them. We'll, we'll say, yeah, that, that's a good choice. We'll pray for them and, and appoint them to this ministry. By the way, just the last couple months at Grace Orange, we, we do this thing every year, and we do nominations. And we give the congregation the job of choosing out from amongst us who do you see that is biblically qualified to be an elder or a deacon or deaconess? We ask that, and we give opportunities. We say, give us names of people that you see. You look in the Bible, you see the, the qualifications, First Timothy and Titus and elsewhere, and you, you say, ah, there's a person that's very clear that God has gifted in this way, and they're amongst us, and we're going to choose them out. Like we, we got 35 or 36 different names given to us for deacons. Okay? We got names for elders. And, and you start working with candidates and go, okay, are you willing to serve? Are you gifted to serve? But that's what they told them. You pick out, congregation, the people, and we're going to appoint them. And here's the kind of people you need to pick. Here's the qualifications. They need to have a good reputation. Makes a lot of sense. If you have a bad reputation, who's going to trust you, right? And they need to be full of the Spirit. They need to know Jesus. They need to be regenerated. They need to be a believer and be very evident that they are a believer. And they need to be full of wisdom. They're doing what is wise in God's sight. They're doing what is, is right in their life, and they're able to do the job. Very important to note this. To serve the food, that needed spiritual qualifications. I think a lot of times in churches, people are like, well, only if I'm going to be teaching the word or leading a group will I really need to be spiritually qualified. You know, let's just find someone that's not really that committed to Christ to go serve food and wait on tables or whatever. No, here, you're never just something. A lot of people will say, I'm just an usher. I'm just a Sunday school teacher. Oh, I'm just, oh, I just set up or I just do this. And what they're doing is they're saying, you know, the way God's gifted me, I don't really like it. I like other gifts better, and they're more important. God doesn't say that. God gives roles in the body. God puts people in the body of Christ as he desires and gives them roles. And there are speaking gifts, and there are serving gifts. 1 Peter 4 tells us that. So you're never just an usher or whatever. And do you notice that preaching and waiting on tables required a good reputation and being full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom? And here's what the apostles said. They said, here's what we're going to do. We are not going to shirk our responsibility. We're not going to set it aside. We're going to devote ourselves to prayer and the ministry of the word. By the way, a lot of pastors and elders will jump right out the word. We'll say, oh, we're going to be devoted to the word, and we forget about prayer. We have a growing, a growing desire amongst our leadership to really be praying. That's why, and we invite you know, anybody who wants to come and show up on sun, uh, Friday mornings even at 6.30 because we pray together right here. We get on our knees before God and we, we, we pour out our hearts before God and we bring the needs of the congregation before him. And, and our elders pray together, our deacons pray together, our staff prays together. And we have to work at it. You know, prayer is hard work. Dietrich Bonhoeffer in his book the, the Cost of Discipleship speaks of the hiddenness of prayer. 
how hidden it is. A lot of Christians will say, a lot of leaders will say, no one will notice if I'm not praying. They'll notice if I'm not studying the word, but they won't really notice if I'm not praying. Oh, yes, they will. You can't separate prayer and the word of God. You should expect when I come up here or whoever else comes up here to preach on a Sunday morning or whoever's teaching your Bible study or whoever's teaching your class that you should expect that they have bathed it in prayer, that they are seeking God's will, that they are saying, God, what do you want for your people from your word? That they, were, that they are letting the word of God go through their heart first. That you should expect that I'm saying, Lord, how is my life changed by this passage? How am I blown away by the, the awesome grace of, of, of God in Christ by this passage? That I should be praying all week long. I tell people it's kind of like putting... Uh, something in a crock pot letting it cook all week long and you're thinking and you're praying and you're studying and you're 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 living well that's what if you're an elder or a pastor your primary responsibility in the church is to pray and to teach and preach the word of god and to be with people i i tell people my, my life is praying preaching and peopling you you, you pray you're, you're depending upon god you're it's hidden and sure, you're praying with other people often as well, but it's got to be a, a, a discipline in your own heart. You know, Jesus taught his disciples to pray. You know what that tells me? It's not natural for us to pray. It's not the natural inclination of our hearts. It's not obvious to us. Jesus had to teach us to pray. And it's hard work to pray and to depend upon the Lord. And, and it's not showing, and it doesn't draw attention to us. And, and they said that we're going we're gonna, to we're gonna devote ourselves to the ministry of the word, the service. There's that word diakoneia, the service of the word, giving the word out, serving God by, by the ministry of the word. And you can't separate prayer and the ministry of the word. Let's say you, you say, I'm just only going to pray. I don't need the word. The Spirit's just going to tell me what to do. I'm just going to pray. You will be tossed about by every wind and wave of doctrine. You will be deceived. But let's say you, you say, well, I'm just going to read the word. I don't need to pray. No one sees if I don't pray, so I'm not going to pray. I'm just going to study the word. You will become puffed up. You will become arrogant. You'll think that you know more than you really do. Maybe you'll have head knowledge, but it wouldn't have hit your heart. You need the word and prayer. And, and so many ministry leaders, they just separate the two out, and they're like, prayer can go, but i got to get into the word. You need them both. Paul was so clear about that. He said, I pray for you all the time. Romans 1, 9, Paul says, I serve God in my spirit in the preaching of the gospel and I unceasingly praise God for you. Ephesians 1, I do not cease giving thanks for you, making mention of you in my prayers. I love Acts 20. Paul is talking to uh, the Ephesian elders and he's saying goodbye to them and he said to them, you know, I serve the Lord with humility and tears, and I, the, the trials that came upon me because of the plots of the Jews that are trying to kill me, but I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable. And I taught publicly and from house to house. And I, and I, I solemnly charged both Jews and Greeks about repentance towards God and faith in Jesus Christ. 
Acts 28, the end of the book, tells us that for two years Paul preached the word and that everyone in Asia heard the word of God. This is before the internet, before microphones, before any kind of media that he could get it out there. He went and preached the word and it says that everybody heard the word of God. Paul said, woe is me if I do not preach the gospel. This is what the apostles were saying. Woe is us if we do not attend to prayer and the ministry of the word. Pastors and elders, again, need to be free to focus on praying and preaching and and peopling. And what happens? Verse five, look at verse five. Did everyone agree? Yes, everyone agreed. All 10,000 some people. A lot of opinions in that group, but there was trust. That's one of the things I'm very thankful for about Grace Church of Orange. There is trust amongst the people. I'm sure there's pockets of, of people that have complaints and, and, and you want to deal with things, but for the most part, we have trust. And here, verse 5, it, what they said pleased. Did you catch that? It pleased the whole gathering. So the very first church business meeting, whatever you want to call it, congregational meeting, they had 100% agreement. Praise God. And someone will say, well, that was the last time that ever happened, right? Notice there's no mention of anyone not getting their way and complaining about it behind the scenes or politicking behind the scenes to try to get their way. That's what we try to do, right? No, what they did, they accepted the answer as a good one. And, and they did what they were, were instructed to do. They said, we're going to choose the people. So they chose seven. They chose them. And then they brought them to the apostles, and the apostles laid hands on them. Verse 6, they set them before the apostles and they prayed and laid their hands on them, which could sound weird to people that aren't used to being around Christians that lay hands on people. So the congregation says, here's the seven we chose, and the notable ones are Stephen and Philip. Stephen's going to die soon for his faith as he's preaching the gospel. Philip is going to be an evangelist that goes out and reaches even a guy from Ethiopia, right? So they, the congregation, sets them before the apostles, says, here they are, and the 12, so they bring them the seven, and the 12 pray and lay hands on them. They appoint them, they commission them, they say, yeah, this is, this is, this is good. We, we see God's hand in this. We see that you're gifted to do this. You're going to be serving the food. You're going to be distributing it. You're going to oversee that, and you're going to keep the peace amongst the people. And so we see this as a good thing, commissioning you to do this. They're identifying them with the 12, by the way. As they lay their hands on them, they're identifying them with the 12. And and what we see is that the church organized to preserve the unity. The church organized and then prioritized the responsibilities in order to promote ministry. That's what the seven servants were chosen to do. Needs such as widows are not to be neglected within the church, actually within families. Very clear in the New Testament that if you have a widow in your family, you are to take care of that widow or you are denying the faith. And if there is a widow in the church that has no family to take care of her, the church is to take care of her. So that is not to be neglected. There's also very clear that responsibilities need to be 
prioritized and not neglected. What if all week long I was doing all these other things, like, you know, pastors just golf all week, right? Uh, I was doing all these other things, and then I came to Saturday night, and I'm like, oh, no, I'm preaching tomorrow three times. Well, oh, Lord Jesus, lead me to what I'm supposed to say in this passage of Scripture. Oh, all right, I can do that. Yeah, got it, ready. What if I was doing that? Some of you are like, well, are you? (laughs) (laughs) Unequivocally not. I'm not doing that. Um, So here's the deal. Oh, by the way, I want to mention this too. Uh, were Were the seven servants the first deacons? By the way, I've taught this so many times. Oh, these are the first deacons. As I've been studying this, I realize it's a very tricky question. Okay, they're never called deacons in here. The same Greek word that, that comes, where we get the word deacon from, is used of service and ministry, but Luke never calls them anything but the seven. You got the 12, you got the seven. And all seven had Greek names, implying they probably were Hellenists, Greek-speaking Jews, and they, qualified, they were qualified to serve, but what were they actually doing? They were meeting a specific need in the church for that moment in time. So I think it's best, probably safest, to view the apostles as a prototype for elders in the, in the future, future office of elder, and it's safe to, uh, to view the seven as a prototype for the future office of deacon. That there are similarities, but it's not the exact same thing. Now you've got Stephen and Philip, they were actually evangelists. So I think it's best to see this group as seven servants appointed to meet a special need at that point in time, not necessarily the first deacons, but a prototype of future deacons. Stephen, we're gonna find out very soon about him, um, and, um, and Philip, and, and they all got, their hands, got the apostles' hands laid on them. The first time in the New Testament that laying on of hands happened, uh, they're identifying with them, affirming them in the service, and... It's great. It's just great. God is pleased. And ministry, ministry was promoted as a result. Like, the ministry just like blew up in the best possible way. Look at verse 7. There's another summary statement here that you see these summary statements that Luke puts in at, at key points. The word of God continued to increase, to grow. And it's an imperfect indicative here, meaning the growth continued over a longer period of time. It wasn't just like poof, it grew really quick. It continued and continued to grow over time. The subject of that sentence is the word of God. The word of God continued to increase. The the subject is the word of God. It, It tells us this. God makes the preaching of the gospel effective. God makes the preaching of the gospel effective and God changes hearts so that people come to faith in Christ. God does it. So the growth consisted of more and more people coming to faith in Christ as Lord and Savior and the believers continued to be transformed by the Spirit of God using the word of God in their lives as they listened to and received the teaching of the word. 
It's very similar. I think there's a metaphor that, that, that Luke used in, in, actually he used it in Luke 8 about the word of God. Uh, it reminds us of, of, of this parable, really, the, the, the parable of the sower, Luke 8, verse 4. So, so there's a metaphor of growth here in Acts reminding us of really of a parable that, that, that Jesus taught. It says this, when a great crowd was gathering and people from town after town came, he said in a parable, a sower went out to sow his seed. And as he sowed, some fell along the path and were trampled underfoot, and the birds of the air devoured it. And some fell on the rock, and as it grew up, it withered away because it had no moisture. And some fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked it. And some fell into good soil and grew and yielded a hundredfold. And as he said these things to them, he called out, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Luke 8 is describing the word of God as a very dynamic force in the world that is going to lead to a great harvest despite opposition. And this is what's going on in in, in the book of Acts. God is is using the word to change people's lives. And and it says that it, it continued to increase. Again, continuous growth. At this point, there were upwards to 10,000 believers and probably about 100,000 people in Jerusalem, meaning about 10% of the population came to Christ, a direct result of the power of the word of God. Apostles were proclaiming the word of God. They would not stop preaching Jesus Christ. And it says in verse seven that a whole bunch of priests came to know Jesus, which would explain what happens next when Stephen gets persecuted and ultimately killed for his faith. So in our time remaining, here's what I want to do. I want to focus in then on preserving church unity, prioritizing leadership responsibilities, and promoting effective ministry. We'll say a few comments about each one of those and then we'll be done. So they preserved unity. They were very wise. They were very, very uh, gentle with the people about it, and, and God brought about unity. Unity is a safeguard to Christ's church. When, when believers are unified, when they're striving together for the gospel, and they're not striving against one another, but they're striving for peace. So make sure if you have a complaint, you do it biblically. And if it's a sin issue... Go and talk to that person in private. You gotta do all you can to live in harmony in the body of Christ. Be very generous with grace and mercy. Be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. This agape love that, that we talk about so much in the, in, from the Bible, God's love for humanity, but also our love for one another. And, and when we have agape love, it's when, when we seek only the other person's well-being not when we seek our own well-being. This, this, this early church is so unified and it's a foregone conclusion in our minds. We're like, well, good, they got unified, but we're struggling to be unified with brothers and sisters in Christ that we see on an ongoing basis. And Jesus said, John 13, all, all men will know that you're my disciples if you have love one for another. I'm gonna tell you a little story I've got a friend that uh, was in a church about 28 years ago and there was a problem in the church. A big problem. This is a big church, 2,000 some people and 
there was an issue in the church and the pastor had resigned to try to call the bluff of another leadership team and they accepted his resignation and it was, it was a big mess. I remember I was in that church and this was 1987 and I remember being on a missions trip in, in Indonesia for a whole month and coming back and seriously just the church was torn up when I got back. I was shocked. And there were pockets in the church that were just fighting and debating about who was right and whose side you're on and they were going to have a big meeting on October 27th, 1987 and it was going to be where we're going to like vote the pastor back in and defeat his enemies kind of a thing and I was on staff and so we were kind of all stirred up in that regard and there were some people in the church that had a pretty bad name amongst certain people depends on what side you were on one of my good friends was one of those who, has a, who had a really bad name in this set, setting and interestingly the, the leadership of the church had gone through and studied everything line by line all the issues that had come up and uh, all the arguments and, and said that this guy was, was hadn't done anything wrong and that he should be thanked for his service but people kept really demonizing this guy and I'm friends to, with him to this day and I was having breakfast with him just recently and I remember asking him we, we had never really talked about it and I said so what happened back in 1987? And he told me the, his, his story. And I said, well, let me ask you something. Did the people that were all mad at you come to you and confront you about what they were angry with you about? He said to me, not one person in the last 28 years has come and talked to me about it. Everybody just assumes that I was wrong. Doesn't that break your heart? We've got to do so much to preserve unity. Uh, let me give you a couple hints of how you can do that. Number one, judge your own heart more than you judge everybody else's. Paul said if we judged our own hearts, we would not be judged. And, and secondly, think about what God is making your brothers and sisters in Christ into. Those new creatures in Christ that you look at and go, while they're messed up think about the new creation he's making them into and then think about where you're all angling where you're going to go forever and be with together forever let that give you some perspective if you're really 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 worked up over something and I, I guess I have to say this too there could be some amongst us that I've been holding a grudge for 28 years. And it's time to let it go. It's time to get right with God in your heart and get right with that other person. If they're still alive and you can go to them, go to them. Talk to them. Strive for peace. Or you just say, you know what? I'm going to let it go. I'm not going to talk to him, but I am going to let it go. It, it is... It is, it is Proverbs says it's a glory to overlook an offense. It's, it's, it's a glory to be forbearing. Let it go. Forgive. And it could very well be that you, you, mis, you misjudged them. Like my friend, misjudged for 28 years. You know, I want to go. I want to go and set the record straight. But wisdom tells me not to. Let's talk about prioritizing responsibilities in the church. 
Some people say, by the way, there should be no formal organizational structure in the church. We just need to follow the Spirit. Others say we're going to organize the life out of this thing and we're going to trust the Holy Spirit to hopefully do something with our mess. Both extremes are wrong. The church is not to be run like a commune, and the church is not to be run like a corporation. I know in the state where churches are corporations, but we are not to be run that way. We are an organism with Christ as our head. We have organic unity in Christ. And we operate under the principle of Christ as our living head. We need to trust the Spirit and organize effectively to do what God wants to do in and through us. That's what the church did. They preserved the unity and they prioritized their responsibilities so that ministry would be freed. And your body has a head, okay? There's no headless people in here today, right? Now, when I opened up that turkey the other day that I smoked in the smoker, it didn't have a head. Open up the package, it wasn't running around. No head, dead. We ate, we enjoyed. Your body has a brain and a head and it needs one. And all that, right? And there's leadership in your body. Your body has a structure, it needs to function, but it's pretty simple, one head. Everyone's got one head and one brain here, right? Now the church is a living, interdependent organism founded and sustained by God. Christ is our head. And by the way, in our day, a lot of Christians expect their pastors to do all sorts of things. Be an entertainer, be a a pragmatist extraordinaire, you know, make everything relevant to everyone in the whole entire church, get into everybody's brain and do that. And then be my life coach. I want my best life now. Or a corporate magnet, you know, the CEO. But here's what your pastors and elders should be doing devoting themselves to prayer and the ministry of the word amongst people. Praying, preaching, and peopling. Okay, let's talk about um, promoting ministry. I just want to play what if with you for a minute and the worship team's gonna come on up. I just want to say this though. Whatever you do, whatever, you, whatever you're gifted at, and you might say, well, I don't know what I'm gifted at. Well, do something, okay? As a Christian, do something and you'll see what you're gifted at. And, and find out what you're gifted at and do that with all your heart. Whatever you do, do from the heart as unto the Lord and not for men. It's the Lord Christ whom you serve. Trust God to give you the strength. But let's play what if for just a moment. What if more than ever before we trusted God and preserved unity and prioritized our responsibilities? What kind of ministry would God do in us and through us. We haven't even dreamt of it yet. Lord God, thank you that everything you ordain, you do for your own glory and redemptive purposes in Christ. Thank you that these seven servants served your gospel purposes. That so many people came to faith in Christ as a result of them doing their job and trusting you. And Lord, whatever problem that might arise in in our assembly, Lord, may we choose to preserve unity prioritize our responsibilities so that ministry would be promoted, that the word of God would continue to multiply, that many would become obedient to the faith. We thank you, Lord, that you save in amazing ways and you grow your church. Amidst our sin, your mercy is so evident. 
Your blood, Lord Jesus, is so absolutely effective for multitudes who are turned by your mercy and grace to look upon you, the only Savior. Thank you, Lord, that in this is love, not that we loved you, but that you loved us and sent, sent Jesus to be the propitiation for our sins, the, the sacrifice for our sins. Thank you, Lord God. Please use us for your glory. Amen.